Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So... Um, we are so happy to be having uh, Neil Stevenson here because uh, we've been talking about this book and this writer for a very, very long time. Um, he lives in Seattle, Washington, but ladies and gentlemen, tonight he's in Los Angeles. Please welcome Neil Stevenson. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for coming out. Um, so I'm going to read uh, a few bits from uh, some remarks, uh, the new one. Um, I haven't been uh, been reading from this much yet because uh, we're still very early in the tour. So I'm going to I'm not doing this so I can check my email. I'm doing it so I can keep track of time because I don't know uh, how long this is going to last. Um, so first thing which I'm going to read in its entirety is uh, a 2006 New York Times uh, op-ed piece called uh, Turn On, Tune In, Veg Out. In the spring of 1977, some friends and I made a 40-mile pilgrimage to the biggest and fanciest movie theater in Iowa so we could watch a new science fiction movie called Star Wars. Expecting long lines, we got there early and found the place deserted. As we sat on the sidewalk waiting for the box office to open, others like us drifted in from the towns, farms, and colleges of central Iowa and queued up behind. When the curtain in front of the big Cinerama screen finally parted, the fanfare sounded and the famous opening crawl appeared against a backdrop of stars there were still some empty seats. Star Wars wasn't famous yet. The only people who had heard about it were what are now called geeks. 28 years later, the vast corpus of Star Wars movies, novels, games, and merchandise still has much to say about geeks and also about a society that loves them, hates them, and depends upon them. In the opening sequence of the new Star Wars movie, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, two Jedi Knights fight their way through an enemy starship to rescue a hostage. Ever since I saw the movie, I have been annoying friends with a trivia question. Who is the enemy? What organization owns this vessel? We ought to know. In 1977, we all knew who owned the Death Star, the Empire, and who owned the Millennium Falcon, Han Solo. But when I ask my question about the new film, everyone reacts in the same way, with a sudden intake of breath and a sideways dart of the eyes, followed by lengthy cogitation. Some confess that they have no idea. Others think out loud for a while, developing and rejecting various theories. Only a few have come up with the right answer. 
one hyperverbal friend was able to spit it out because he had read and memorized the opening crawl. Another, a hardcore science fiction fan, had been boning up on supplemental materials, Clone Wars, an animated TV series consisting of, quote, epic adventures that bridged the story arc between Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. If you have watched these cartoons, or if you've enjoyed some of the half-dozen Clone Wars novels, flipped through the graphic novels, read the short stories, or played the video game, you will know that the battlecruiser in question is owned by the new droid army of the Confederacy of Independent Systems, which is backed by the Trade Federation, a commercial guild that is peeved about taxation of trade routes. <laughs> and that is not the only aspect of Episode 3 that you will see in a different light. If you watch the movie without doing the prep work, General Grievous, who is supposed to be one of the most formidable bad guys in the entire Star Wars cycle, will seem like something that just fell out of a Happy Meal. <laughs> but if you've been boning up, you'll have seen Grievous slay many a Jedi. Hayden Christensen, who plays Anakin Starwalker, Skywalker slash Darth Vader, has taken flack for his performance. Anakin is supposed to be a tragic figure endowed with cosmic powers wrestling with an impossible moral dilemma. In the movie, he seems more like a homecoming king who has just found a scratch on his Camaro. <laughs> if you've seen the Clone Wars cartoons and read the books, you'll understand that the kid is a seriously damaged veteran, a poster child for post-traumatic stress disorder. But since none of that background is supplied by the episode 3 script, Mr. Christensen has been given an impossible acting task. He's trying to swim in air. In some, very little of the new film makes sense, taken as a freestanding narrative. What's interesting about this is how little it matters. Millions of people are happily spending their money to watch a movie they don't understand. What gives? Modern English has given us two terms we need to explain this phenomenon, geeking out and vegging out. To geek out on something means to immerse yourself in its details to an extent that is distinctly abnormal and to have a good time doing it. To veg out, by contrast, means to enter a passive state and allow sounds and images to wash over you without troubling yourself too much about what it all means. In corporate speak, there is a related term used when someone has committed the faux pas of geeking out during a meeting. Let's take this offline, someone will suggest, when the PowerPoint slides grow dark with words. <laughs> Literally, it means, I look forward to geeking out on this topic later. But really, it's a polite synonym for shut up already. <laughs> the first Star Wars movie 28 years ago was distinguished by healthy interplay between veg and geek scenes. In the climactic sequence where rebel fighters attack the Death Star, we repeatedly cut away from the dog fights and strafing runs, the purest kind of vegging out material, to hushed command bunkers where people stood around pondering computer displays, geeking out on the strategic progress of the battle. All such content, as well as the long, beautiful, uncluttered shots of desert, sky, jungle, and mountain that filled the early episodes, was banished in the first of the prequels, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, 1999. In the 16 years that separated it from the initial trilogy, a new universe of ancillary media had come into existence. These had made it possible to take the geek material offline so that the movies could consist of pure, uncut, veg-out content steeped in daycare 
center ambiance. <laughs> These newer films don't even pretend to tell the whole story. They are akin to PowerPoint presentations that summarize the main bullet points from a much more comprehensive body of work developed by and for a geek subculture. <laughs> Concentrate on the moment. Feel, don't think. Trust your instincts, says a Jedi to the young Anakin in episode one, immediately before a pod race in which Anakin is likely to get killed. It is distinctly odd counsel coming from a member of the Jedi Order, the geekiest people in the universe. They have beards and ponytails. They dress in army blankets. They are expert <laughs> fighter pilots. They build their own laser swords from scratch. And as is made clear in the Clone Wars novels, the masses and the elites both claim to admire them but actually fear and loathe them because they hate being dependent upon their powers. Anakin wins that race by repairing his crippled racer in an ecstasy of switch flipping that looks about as intuitive as starting up a nuclear submarine. <laughs> Clearly the boy is destined to be adopted into the Jedi Order where he will develop his geek talents, not by studying calculus, but by meditating a lot and learning to trust his feelings. I lap this stuff up along with millions, maybe billions of others. Why? Because every single one of us is as dependent on science and technology, and by extension on the geeks who make it work, as a patient in intensive care, yet we much prefer to think otherwise. Scientists and technologists have the same uneasy status in our society as the Jedi in the Galactic Republic. They are scorned by the cultural left and the cultural right, and young people avoid science and math classes in hordes. The tedious particulars of keeping ourselves alive, comfortable, and free are being taken offline to countries where people are happy to sweat the details as long as we have some foreign exchange left to send their way. Nothing is more seductive than to think that we, like the Jedi, could be masters of the most advanced technologies while living simple lives, to have a geek standard of living and spend our copious leisure time vegging out. If the Star Wars movies are remembered a century from now, it'll be because they are such exact parables for this state of affairs. Young people in other countries will watch them in classrooms as an answer to the question, whatever became of that big rich country that used to buy the stuff we make? The answer, it went the way of the old republic. The second, thanks. Now I'm going to read some excerpts. This is on a, a related theme, as you'll see, from a lecture I gave at Gresham College in, uh, in London in 2008. Um, so this will be a little disjointed because I'm kind of hopping around in the, the thing, but um, here we go. I was in New York City a few weeks ago having dinner with friends. Thanks to their hospitality, we dined in a highly civilized but by no means flashy or famous Italian restaurant just off of Midtown where the office buildings begin to give way to townhouses. One of the pleasures of dining in such places is that you get real professional waiters, not just kids trying to make a few bucks or out-of-work actors, but middle-aged people who've done it before, who take it seriously as their life's work and who do it with dignity and grace. Our waiter was one of those, probably in his late 40s, impeccably dressed, knew how to show up when we needed something, and to disappear otherwise. 
I was telling my companions about a trip I had recently made to Vegas. Not normally my idea of a place to go, but the Sci-Fi Channel had flown me down there to take part in a panel discussion. One of the other panelists was Lucy Lawless. <laughs> now, if you're not an SF kind of person, then I will probably have to tell you that she is an actor best known for her title role on the television series Xena, Warrior Princess, and more recently appearing on Battlestar Galactica. If you are an SF person, you already know this and much more about her. <laughs> Well, it turned out that our waiter that evening, contrary to appearances, was very much an SF person. And as soon as he heard me mention the name of Lucy Lawless, he spun around to face us and came over to join the conversation. <coughs> now, remember this man hears the names of the rich and famous dropped all the time. He probably serves the rich and famous all the time. It's his job to pretend he doesn't notice, and he does his job very well in the mundane world. But as soon as he heard me mention Lucy Lawless, the mundane shell dropped away and he turned into a fan. This waiter is displaying a trait that is epitomized, for better or worse, by the cruel mundane stereotype of SF fans wearing rubber Vulcan ears. <laughs> in a sense, all of us, all SF fans, are forever carrying those rubber ears around, concealed in the pockets of our business suits, military uniforms, waiters' jackets, or doctors' smocks. No one knows they're there. But when we find ourselves around like-minded persons, even if they happen to be total strangers, we absentmindedly reach into our pockets, pull out the ears, and slap them on. We identify ourselves as geeks. We geek out. Lucy Lawless is one example of an actor with a bifurcated career, a topic I would like to explore for a few minutes. It might sound to you like a trivia game, but I think that it works as a kind of natural experiment that gives us information about the bifurcated culture. I first noticed this when I was watching the first Lord of the Rings movie and the character of Elrond made his first appearance. He looked strangely familiar to me. Later I looked him up on IMDB and figured out that he was, of course, the same guy who portrays Agent Smith in the Matrix movies. His name is Hugo Weaving. In the mundane world, he has a perfectly respectable career going. It is difficult to make a living as an actor. One has to be very good and to work very hard to make a go of it. Hugo Weaving has done this and has appeared in various mundane plays and films. If he'd never done any SF work at all, he'd have a career that other actors would envy. It's likely, however, that none of us would have seen him or heard of him because in the mundane world, he's not a huge star. In the SF world, he is one of the biggest stars of all time. Why the difference? What is it about him that accounts for this imbalance? Once I noticed this phenomenon, other examples came to mind. I've already mentioned Lucy Lawless, and is by no means a historical curiosity because there are incipient bifurcated stars. The Sarah Connor Chronicles, a new TV series based on the Terminator movies, features two. Lena Headey, who looked familiar to me because I'd previously seen her in 300 as the unfortunately named Gorgo, Queen of Sparta. <laughs> And by the way, she's now, of course, got one of the lead roles in uh, Game of Thrones as Cersei Lannister. Um, and Summer Glau, who played one of the characters on the SF series Firefly. Sigourney Weaver has had a bifurcated career. Again, this isn't to say that she didn't do perfectly well for herself in mundane films and theatrical productions. In Alien and Aliens, though, she attained a level of fame that far exceeded her mundane work. And I don't think she would mind my saying so because she took a role in the film Galaxy Quest that made light of exactly this kind of situation. 
Is there any common thread linking the actresses I've mentioned? Lucy Lawless, Lena Headey, and Sigourney Weaver are all athletic, statuesque, good at doing action stuff. The cynical interpretation then is that male SF fans like to ogle Amazons. <laughs> A more generous take on it is that SF is more forgiving towards strong women. I suspect that both of these are true, but they're not enough to explain the bifurcated career phenomenon. Galaxy Quest, of course, was transparently based on Star Trek, which brings to mind the archetypal bifurcated actor, Leonard Nimoy, who attained such perfection in his portrayal of Spock that it led to two unintended consequences. The one everyone knows about is that he afterwards found it difficult to get non-Vulcan work. <laughs> The less obvious one is that never again in the ongoing history of the franchise were the producers of any of those films or television episodes able to find a, an actor who could convincingly portray a Vulcan. Just as an exercise, I spent a while trying to think whether there was any actor, living or dead, who could possibly portray a Vulcan as convincingly as Leonard Nimoy. I assumed that this experiment would end in failure, but surprisingly the answer came to me immediately, Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving would make a totally convincing Vulcan, and it's not just because we've already seen him with pointy ears, it's something else. I think that it is the ability to portray intelligence. When I first saw Weaving as Elrond, I didn't think I was going to like him because he looked very different from how I had imagined this character when I read The Lord of the Rings. But I ended up liking his performance very much. He was able to convince me that he really was a 3,000-year-old elf lord. Part of this is simply that he's a professional actor who's good at what he does, but it also, I'm convinced, has something to do with his ability to project, to project intelligence. Consider some of the other characters in the Star Trek franchise. Out of the entire cast of Star Trek The Next Generation, I would say that the two most beloved successful characters are Commander Data, portrayed by Brent Spiner, and Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart. These are very different characters, but what they have in common is that they are intelligent people portrayed convincingly by actors who are either very intelligent or else good at seeming that way. Some other characters in this series did not ring true for SF fans in the same way. Going back to the female actors I was talking about earlier, I believe that the same is true. Oh, it helps that they are statuesque, beautiful, and athletic, but there is more to it than that. It is conspicuous in the first two Alien films that Sigourney Weaver's character is the smartest person in the room at any given time. The only possible exception is Bishop, the android in the second film played by Lance Henriksen in another fine example of an intelligence projecting performance. One believes in this character in the same way that one believes in Nimoy's Spock or that I at least believe in Weaving's Elrond. All of these actors can somehow convey that there is complexity behind the eyes. The intelligence of these characters isn't just a slapped-on trait. These are not token nerds thrown into an ensemble piece to solve technical problems. Their intelligence is an intrinsic reason why you're supposed to find them interesting, to identify with them. It is what makes them human, even, especially, when they are not actually humans. If the actor can't portray that intelligence, the character fails altogether. Counterexamples are legion. We have all suffered through movies that were ruined by characters doing stupid things. The classic example is in suspense movies where someone, usually a pretty girl, is running away from a monster or a serial killer when she happens to trip and fall down. Whereupon, instead of simply getting back up to her feet and running some more, she sits on the ground whimpering until the threat catches up with her. 
And we've all seen bad horror movies in which the protagonists blunder into situations that no one who has ever actually watched a bad horror movie would ever get into. <laughs> the satisfaction and the solace offered by good SF is that its characters don't behave that way. Consider how Ripley, the character played by Sigourney Weaver, responds to the threat posed by the aliens. In the second film, once she and the Marines she's with have made first contact with the aliens and had a chance to catch their breath, they very quickly agree that they should simply go back to the orbiting ship and nuke the place. It's a brilliant move on the part of the filmmakers precisely because, because it is the obvious and intelligent thing to do. It's exactly what we in the audience are all thinking to ourselves. But because it's a kind of horror movie and we've been conditioned to expect stupid behavior from characters in horror movies, it's the last thing we're expecting. When the idea is raised and agreed on, we wake up, sit a little straighter in our chairs and say, oh, this is a movie about real people, <laughs> which is to say people who behave intelligently. And for the rest of the film, that promise is largely borne out as Ripley goes on to do a number of more or less intelligent things, such as using a cigarette lighter to set off a fire alarm when she needs to draw the other's attention, and so on. So in SF, intelligence is just how people behave and is what you expect in a well-wrought piece. But by this definition, intelligence is something that has undergone some changes during the last 50 years or so. The Heinleinian hero who knows everything, who can do everything is gone. The world is complicated. No one can be good at everything. I bought a new car a couple of weeks ago and I still haven't read more than a few pages of the inch and a half thick pile of instruction books that came with it. It, like everything else in our lives, has too many features, too many details for our minds to hold. The best we can do is to be good at something or a few things. We come home tired and we feel the need to veg out a recent coinage meaning to drop voluntarily into a kind of vegetative coma. I should know, in my family I am infamous for my lowbrow tastes in entertainment, but many people after they have vegged out long enough to recharge their batteries derive fun and profound satisfaction from geeking out on whatever topic is of particular interest to them. Choose any person in the world at random, no matter how non-geeky they might seem, and talk to them long enough, and in most cases you will eventually hit on some topic about which they are exorbitantly knowledgeable, and if you express interest on which they are willing to talk enthusiastically for hours, you have found their inner geek. Sometimes the inner geek may be hidden very deeply indeed. The grizzled, taciturn machinist who normally speaks in sentences of one or two words will light up and deliver an extemporaneous dissertation about his favorite alloys of steel. The forklift operator at Walmart will turn out to be a Civil War reenactor who can recite the full history of the Battle of Shiloh down to the level of individual squads and soldiers. This is how knowledge works today, and it's how it's going to work in the future. No more Heinleinian polymaths. Instead, a web of geeks, each of whom knows a lot about something. 20 years ago, we called them nerds and we despised them. We didn't like the power that they seemed to have over the rest of us and we identified them as something different from normal society. Now we call them geeks and we like them just fine because they are us. Nerds were limited to math and science and computers. Geeks also do those kinds of things, which isn't saying much because everyone works with computers all the time now. But geeks can also be experts on welding or civil war battles or fine cabinet making. Everyone gets 
now that this is how society is going to work and as long as geeks bathe frequently enough and don't commit the faux pas of geeking out at the wrong time in the wrong company, it's okay. It's better than okay. It's desirable. We're all geeks now. But we're all geeks in different subject areas and so the only thing that links us all together is what we watch on the tube when our geek energies have been spent and we feel the need to veg out the lowest common denominator stuff. Almost everyone knows and agrees that this material is idiotic. It doesn't reflect the way the world actually works because it doesn't contain as many geeks as the real world that we all inhabit. In that sense, it's more unrealistic, more fantastical than the material that actually gets tagged as fantasy. It is when we turn on a movie or a television show and observe people behaving intelligently that we sit up a little straighter in our seats and get interested, begin to take the story and its characters a little more seriously. Thank you. So let me turn this back into a saleable object and um, <laughs> we can go ahead and take uh, questions for a little bit. Uh, yes, way in the back, person I can't see with black. Are you excited about the Snow Crash movie that Jane actually did not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's been sort of in, in the works in various forms for, for a long time. Uh, but. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I've had some good meetings with uh, with um, Joe Cornish and the the producers to be, and um, and uh, so far it's uh, so far so good. So, yeah, thanks. Um, yes. The next step in the evolution of man is it going to be more, in your humble opinion, is it going to be more influenced by chips? and rebuilding neuro neuro neurological systems or is it going to be more genetic manipulation or will it, is it completely impossible to determine? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of interested in the, the, the sort of, I mean the, the new hip idea, at least new to me, seems to be that it's not so much about your genes as which genes your body is expressing at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah which um, which uh, is is kind of an interesting uh, little factoid. So um, uh, I saw a fascinating presentation by Jack Horner, the dinosaur guy, uh, a, a few months ago, where uh, he was uh, sort of positing that the way to bring back dinosaurs isn't to get mosquito blood out of amber, uh, <laughs> but to basically turn chickens back into dinosaurs by switching on uh, genes that uh, that got turned off. So all the, all the, or at least a lot of the DNA is there. It just isn't being, uh, isn't being expressed. So uh, that's the interesting thing to me at the moment. Yeah. Uh, that, what you were just saying sounds a lot like uh, the sort of manifestations of binary code that show up in Snow Crash. So could you just keep talking about that? Keep talking. <laughs> keep talking. Um, I don't know. You've, you've made a, a deeper connection than, uh, than, than I have. Um, but... Um, the, uh, Do you think it's related on that sort of very deep reality level? Though? Well, I mean, uh, uh, the um, uh, I've I've got my hands stuffed into my pockets, so you can't see me waving them. But uh, the um, um, you know, in in, in the 
if what we're talking about is is executable stuff that's kind of hidden, uh, that's what this epigenetic stuff is, and it comes out in when the circumstances are right, when certain triggers happen. And if you look at the Stuxnet worm um, that was in the, uh, the the nuclear enrichment facility in Iran, you know that that was a, a worm that spread to a lot of places, but it was smart enough to know that it should only turn itself on when it was in a facility full of centrifuges, like 768 centrifuges. So there may be a lot of code wandering around out there that's that smart now that it only turns itself on in a certain uh, set of circumstances. So, it's, uh, okay, so there's, wow. Um, okay, so uh, a blue dress, or striped, sorry. What do you think about the Mars rover? Um, that's an amazing thing. I, I didn't think it was going to work. It was, <laughs> you know, it was too, too complicated and so many things that, that could have gone wrong with that. It just completely blew me away. It was just bang, 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 bang. Everything worked perfectly and it landed and, and came awake. Uh, so that is... Uh, uh, a, a remarkable thing, and it's it it sort of raises this awkward question of if if we're that smart, why is you know why why can't we sort of get things fixed up on on this 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 planet? You know what's what's wrong with our system for deploying talent and capital that we can't uh, we can't get anything done here? So there was, yeah, okay, blue shirt. I'm just going to kind of work my way forward, so. Yeah, so there's been uh, two books that have come up in the last year, nonfiction books that have kind of tangentially profiled this um, sort of underappreciated genius of the 20th century, Claude Shannon, who invented information theory at Bell Labs in the 40s. Yeah. And in reading about him, I was struck by a lot of similarities to the Lawrence Waterhouse uh, character. Uh-huh, uh, yeah. Cryptonomicon. He's from a small Midwestern town. Yeah. Home on cryptography during the war. <laughs> Around building proto computers in the 40s. That, that no, that's a, a lucky accident. I didn't. Uh, I, I always assumed, just based on his name, that he must have been, you know, from a sort of affluent East Coasty kind of uh, background or something. Um, but um, one of the books you're talking about was the one about uh, Bell Labs. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's probably a copy in here somewhere, but yeah, the idea factory. Yeah, yeah, I think he's mentioned in uh, in George Dyson's um, Turing's Cathedral. Um, but um, uh, yeah, an interesting thing, uh, particularly about the idea factory, was was that several of those people came from that kind of midwestern small town uh, environment, which is where I come from, so I thought it was incredibly fascinating. Um, but, yeah. Okay, next blue shirt guy. Uh, what, what was the motivation behind the collaborative effort of uh, Mongolia? Very good. Um, the, uh, um, it just kind of happened. Uh, there wasn't a lot of motivating. It was a, um, it, there wasn't uh, like a, a plan. Uh, it, it sort of came together. Uh, um, and, um, uh, the uh, we we had a pool of people who were interested in collaborating on that that project, and so we just kind of started the whole kind of theory behind it, the sort of business model behind it was um, 
um, don't just stand there, do something. Just start. Just start doing something and get it out and and see what happens and iterate around that. Yeah, yeah. I I knew the the other participants. Uh, we were all sort of related through a, a martial arts group. So there were some hands up here earlier. Yeah, white. White shirt. Yeah, uh, setting plays a really intimate role in all of your stories. And uh, I'm interested, is there a setting that you want to take on in future book that you have explored? Setting? Setting, yeah. Um, well, sure. I mean, I mean, there's. Uh, um, it's 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 a I think it's a great way to draw the the reader in to a, a particular world is to describe a setting and 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 the world's you know full of those so uh, there there I, I don't um, uh, that's not where I start so it's I, I don't start by saying oh I'd like to write something in such and such place. Let me see if I can think up a story that involves it. Um, so I tend to start with, I need to have a good story with good characters, and then um, the the setting kind of falls out of that, and I, I you know try to describe the setting in a way that it helps kind of set up the the story and explain who the characters are. So yeah. Um, I was just curious about um, your involvement along now and how that process is coming along with the, with the clock. Yeah, this is a question about the Long Now Foundation and the the ten thousand year year clock. I mean, I'm quite peripheral. I sort of uh, know some of the people involved and and look in on their their progress uh, maybe a, a few times a year. But um, it's, it's seems to be coming along quite well. A lot of the design work is being done uh, quite close to here in Glendale. The um, uh, they've done a lot of excavation uh, at the site and and built the part of the complex of underground passages where the clock is going to be constructed and is it going to be in uh, West Texas okay. I remember seeing a Nevada and a Texas mentioned early on and I wasn't sure yeah the, the at least the the first one uh, is is going to be in in West uh, in West Texas yeah so I mean it's it's happening I mean it's it's coming together um, uh, it, it, did that, was that something that grew out of Anathem, or did it grew out of that? Anathem grew out of that, yeah. yeah. So uh, they um, asked me and a bunch of other people to contribute kind of sketches of our visions of the clock around the year 2000. Um, not as serious design efforts, but just here's how some people are thinking about it. And so it was the, the sketch that I drew in response to that that request um, sort of got me thinking uh, along the lines that led to uh, to, to Anathem. Yeah. Um, so as a woman and a reader of sci-fi, um, I really appreciate your strong female characters. In your oh, life. thanks. Um, Yay. And uh, I was wondering about your motivation to write such strong and fearless characters because they really resonate with mm. Well, thanks. Well, I don't know. It's just... Um, it, it to me it, it's it almost doesn't require motivation I mean I see people like that all the time like every day uh, and um, so it just seems like a, a fair you know a fair and balanced uh, account of objective reality should include some people like that and there's the additional incentive that it's you know somewhat unusual and so um, 
you know, I it, it helps get get people's attention and draw people into the into the story. So um, it's and I like people like that. So you know, it's all it's kind of easy win win. I, I don't know why why it isn't done more, but uh, yes, uh, yeah. Curious about how you develop your characters in, in the trilogy, for example. Uh -huh. The character of Eliza is, is necessary to get into the discussion of the development of the monetary system. Yeah. I'm just curious, which came first in in your plan for the series? The focus on the monetary system at the end, or the uh, the the general answer to all questions like that is that you know it starts with story and, and character because if you don't have that you, you got nothing and so in her case um, it it came out of some reading I was doing that um, the you know the Algerians had um, like tens of thousands of European slaves in Algiers at any given time for centuries I mean and they would they would go on raiding voyages. As far as the the British Isles, they would just row ashore in some place in uh, the British Isles and snatch a few people and take them off into to slavery. So, and and some of them would make their way into the the Sultan's uh, uh, court uh, in in uh, Istanbul. So, um, just reading that, I just thought, well. That's a no-brainer. I mean, I mean, there's there's a character. Uh, you know, it's just a great story that's already been written. I just have to to tell it. Um, and so, um, the then the, the how she developed over time was. Uh, I mean, she she started as a a sort of counterpoint to, to Jack, the person that she's traveling with, she's got to be everything that he's not. And, and what he's not is smart about money. Um, and, and so to make, to make an effective duo, duo out of those two, um, I, you know, that, that's kind of how, how that got started. And then, and then the other kind of historical fact that, that became useful in that development was that um, uh, contrary to what I would think, which which is that all uh, noble titles were sort of passed down uh, through by by birth, there were a lot of a lot of nobility who who sort of became that way by by just doing something useful for the king or making a crap load of money somehow and and being ennobled and being given uh, a title, and so. Um, that that's kind of the the back end of of her story, and it's all it's all based on on stuff that happened. Yes, sir, in the back. Yeah. I recently purchased a book called what I thought was Reamdi. Yeah, Reamdi. Yeah. 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 After a couple of days sitting on my nightstand, a light came in the window, and I noticed there were two different colors, and it dawned on me it was Reamdi, and. I wondered if the, I started looking through other titles to see if there were any messages. Oh. <laughs> What's that? My question is, are there? No, no. Um, that that was a that was a case where uh, you know that title became. You know, we discussed it on the phone a lot. My publisher and my agent and I, and and so we all knew how it was pronounced, and it was just an oversight. We didn't realize that when people saw it, they weren't going to know how to pronounce it. And so uh, next time I'll, 
I'll try to remedy that. But yeah. Okay, so there's two guys directly in front of him, behind each other. So we'll take from the back forward. Brown shirt, curly hair first. Uh, going back to settings, uh, one of my favorite settings you created from the Roman trilogy, Encryptonomicon, is I'm going to mispronounce this. Uh, yeah. I was wondering, yeah. first of all, how you pronounce that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's just a uh, uh, a sort of useful thing to have around. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's just an extra degree of freedom that I can that I can play with, and I I think people who you know who traveled around some of the more remote parts of of Britain will you know sort of have a, a sense of, of, of where it comes from and um, the you know the, the story is that their language is totally non related to any other language and so they use all kinds of clicks and pops and guttural sounds that English people can't actually even pronounce so the the convention uh, among the the local English people is to call it tagum which has no actual similarity to the actual pronunciation um, but um, but the people from there who hear it said that way understand that this is just the English person trying to speak the name of their, their island. So, yes? Uh, what are your thoughts on groups like Anonymous or WikiLeaks? I think they're wonderful. Um, no. No, I mean, they... Uh, um, uh, I mean, as you know, the, these are fascinating outgrowths of uh, of where we are right now. Um, clearly, there's you know a kind of anarchic uh, quality about about what they do uh, that that makes them uh, unpredictable, and um, and so the results vary from one uh, exploit to the the next. You, you, you know, uh, I, I heard that uh, a few weeks ago, Anonymous went after child pornographers. I, I, I guess they were, I don't know if that was like, uh, I don't know how decisions are made. <laughs> you, you, you know, you know, let's 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 hit the let's hit the pedophiles this week. Uh, I don't know what the. At least PR. Yeah, right. So is you know is 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 there that level of 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 strategic decision making going on where they they make a cynical decision to to do a PR a, a good PR move or is it just a, a god damn it let's take care of this this problem right now kind of thing I don't know but um, I don't think I ever will um, but um, uh, they're certainly energetic. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Um, uh, were you ever any doubt that the Clan project would get fully funded? Constantly. Yeah. yeah from uh, until the last forty-eight hours, it was very much up in the air. So, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was very. Uh, it was. It was. You know, it could have gone either way. Uh, and. Um, uh, so uh, and and that had interesting. Side effects in that um, it it forced us to do a lot more communicating with the donor community. Uh, if it if if it totally fails, then it, you just sort of sort of give up. And and if it blows past its goal, 
right away. You kind of don't have to talk to people. But uh, if you've got to constantly worry every day about whether you're on track, then it, it forces a much higher degree of interactivity with the community. And I think that you know, that was very tiring and involved a lot of work and a lot of stress. But I, I think it's going to pay dividends uh, in the long run for for the, the, the project because we're a lot more in touch with uh, the, the donor community than we might have been uh, if we had been just totally ignoring them. Yeah. Um, how are we doing on, on time just before I take, are we like? Got a few minutes. A few minutes, okay. Uh, there's somebody way in the back, yes, uh, waving your hand, two fingers guy, yeah. Uh, I was wondering about the Trypanomicon uh -huh. Is those all happened at once and did they all come out of the cable lane storing in for wire or did that um, the um, how can I tell this uh, to make myself look as good as possible? Um, <laughs> the uh, I think it started uh, the first the first thing was the idea for Cryptonomicon, and I was working on it for a bit, and then at very shortly thereafter, the idea for the cable article came up, and I sort of was resistant to doing it at first, uh, and then decided maybe I could get some travel to some useful places and, and do some some research, kind of combine research trips a little bit. So uh, uh, it helped. the The cable article helped with with research for Cryptonomicon, and then. Uh, in the original scheme, Cryptonomicon is going to be even bigger. It's going to have a, a third part to it, uh, and um, that got axed because it wasn't any good. And the um, uh, and so, but but a, a consequence of that was that it sat mostly finished for something like a year before it was ready to be published, and and so and that's an unusually long time. Uh, and during that time, um, uh, I, I separately became aware, because of George Dyson's book, um, I, can't, I can't pull it up. It's not, uh, it's not Turing's Cathedral, that's his most recent one. Uh, but it's the one before, it's a history of, uh, of computing. Um, the, um, um, his, uh, he he talked in in that book about uh, about Leibniz um, having effectively invented digital computing, you know, 300 years before I, I believed it had been invented. So that was that was uh, a remarkable uh, thing for me to learn. And then at about the same time, I learned from another person that Newton had um, spent the last three decades of his life working uh, at the Mint, the Royal Mint at the Tower of London. Um, and so here I was, I had this book sitting on my desk that was done, that was about computers, codes, and money. And uh, I just become aware that uh, Leibniz did computers and codes, and, and Newton, Newton did money. And they knew each other, they hated each other, they were the two brightest minds on the planet at that time, and they lived in the middle of one of the most glorious, fascinating eras in, in human history. And so it just became obvious that I had to make that my next project. And so I had enough time to kind of go in and make some changes in 
the text of Cryptonomicon before it was frozen for publication to sort of tie it in with the, the deeper story that I was going to start writing. And then I went on from there to, to work on the, the Baroque cycle. So, Darwin Among the Machines, I think, is, is George uh, George's book. Um, yes? Uh, just actually tying into the Baroque cycle discussion. Uh, I, I was curious about your writing it in long form with fountain pens. And was that about trying to tie into understanding the mindset or to write at a different speed or pace? Um, it was. Uh, sorry. That's okay. Um, it was it was um, a little bit about the mindset, but it was more about about pacing and just my observation that uh, writing with a pen worked for me, uh, and so I decided to try it, and just because I could, could always switch back, and I found that it worked, and so I just kept doing it that way and, until it was done. Uh, yes, ma'am. What are you really excited about right now? Like maybe to develop into uh, short article, long article, but like what ideas are really exciting? Uh, what am I really excited about right now in the way of ideas? Um, well, the the thing that keeps popping to the surface is this thing I kind of alluded to earlier, which is that we've got we've got the ability to drop atomic dune buggies on Mars with total precision. Um, so there's lots of smartness and ability to do things out there. We've got a huge number of problems that we need to solve that require big big thinking and, and a lot of innovation. And I keep hearing that we've got a huge amount of cash sitting around, that there are a lot of companies just sitting on big piles of cash and investors being very conservative and, and uh, just sitting in bonds or cash or whatever. Um, and it just strikes me as a bit odd that those things haven't all come together and, um, and led to, to, to some, some, some uh, problems getting, getting solved. And I don't understand why that's the, the case. I don't understand kind of what, it's like we've fallen into a faulty you know, configuration of our resources that isn't working for us. Um, and um, I, I certainly don't have the answer, um, but um, you know, uh, it, it's it's a sufficiently interesting question that I find myself thinking about a lot. And and when I bring it up to people, they a lot of them kind of nod their heads, and and it turns out they've been kind of thinking similar things themselves. So, so um, I'm I'm hoping that uh, that we figure that out. Um, so. Um, so it's, I guess it's a little early for me to be excited about that because I'm still in the incredibly depressed phase. But, um, but you know, I hope that maybe that'll change and we'll move on to to, to really exciting things happening uh, in the pretty near future. And on that kind of quasi-optimistic note, I think maybe we should switch over to the the book signing phase of the evening. So thank you all. Thank you. Um, thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. 
You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.